0: As an overview and for context, the three-volume set, Therapy of Spiritual Illnesses by Alexander Press, written by Dr. Jean-Claude Larchet of France, is essentially broken into six parts. Volume one contained parts one and two. Part one being anthropological premises, original health, and the origin of illnesses. Part two being what we just completed, nosology, symptomology, and pathogenesis of spiritual diseases, that is, the passions. Volume 2 contains Part 3 and Part 4, which is the general conditions of therapy, Christ the Physician, sacramental therapies, the subjective conditions for healing and health, the process of healing, inner conversion, and from implementation of therapy from Part 4, the twofold movement of inner conversion, the outline of the therapy of the fundamental faculties of the soul, then the implementation of the generic virtues, and the therapeutic role of the spiritual father, and the manifestation of thoughts, logismi, and the fight against thoughts, and other therapy bodily asceticism. And to conclude his work, volume three, contains Parts 5 and 6 with conclusion. Part 5 being the therapy of passions and the acquisition of virtues. So the opposite of Volume 1, where it will be studied the therapy of gluttony, the therapy of lust, the therapy of love of money and greed, therapy of sadness, therapy of anger, therapy of fear, therapy of vainglory and pride, and the Part 6 of 6, Health Restored. Impassibility, Charity, and Knowledge. To be continued. Therapy of Spiritual Illnesses, An Introduction to the Ascetic Tradition of the Orthodox Church, Volume 2, by Dr. Jean-Claude Larcher, translated from the 4th French edition by Father Kilian Sprechter, published by Alexander Press, Montreal, 2012. Part 3, General Conditions of Therapy Chapter 1 Christ the Physician St. Irenaeus observes, The Lord himself bears witness that he is come as a physician for the sick. Indeed, he publicly states, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but the sick. I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And surely you will apply the saying to me, physician heal thyself and again the spirit of the lord is upon me he has sent me to heal those who are broken hearted conforming to this teaching of christ about himself the fathers and the entire church tradition see in him a physician sent by the father to heal men sick with the consequences of the ancestral sin and to cause human nature to regain its original health before the Word's incarnation, God was already thought of as he who heals all diseases. And according to the Holy Fathers, the prophets, especially Moses, were sent by the Spirit of God as physicians to care for Israel, sick with sin. But they could do nothing in the face of the serious illness and deep wound that affected fallen humanity. St. Cyril of Jerusalem writes, quote, The prophets were sent, as was Moses, so as to heal Israel. But they cared for them in tears, not achieving dominion over the ill. Great was mankind's wound. From head to toe there was no healthy spot. There was nowhere to place poultice, oil, or bandage. End of quote from Baptismal Catechesis. St. Dorotheus of Gaza writes in the same vein, From his instructions on Isaiah and Jeremiah, God sent the prophets, but they themselves could do nothing. For the ill exceeded all bounds. According to the word of the prophet Isaiah, there is nothing but bruise and sores and bleeding wounds. There is nowhere to place poultice, oil, or bandages. Isaiah 1.6 In other words, the evil is not partial or localized, but rather widespread throughout the entire body enveloping the whole soul and sealing up its faculties. They are not pressed out, and so forth, because everything was enslaved to sin and lay in its power. Jeremiah also proclaims, We tried to heal Babylon, but she was not healed. Jeremiah 28.9 St. Macarius of Egypt, likewise, says in his homilies, At the time of Adam's transgression, the enemy had tried to wound the inner man and enshroud him in darkness. From then on, his eyes were fixed on evil and the passions, remaining closed to the heavenly blessings. He was wounded so grievously that no one could heal him. Not one of the righteous, nor the fathers, nor the prophets, nor the patriarchs was able to heal the soul that had received the incurable wound of the wicked passions in the beginning. Moses came but was unable to procure complete healing. Priests, offerings, tithes, Sabbaths, new moons, purifications, sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and all the other means of justification existed in the time of the law, yet all the righteous of the soul could not heal it. End of quote. Saint Anthony the Great takes up this subject in most of his letters each time using the same pathological and therapeutic terminology. He writes, quote, In his exhaustible, inexhaustible love, the Creator desired to visit us in our illnesses and estrangement. He raised up Moses, the lawgiver, this Moses, who laid the foundations of the house of truth, wished to heal this deep wound and lead us back to the original communion. He was not successful and passed away. After him came the assembly of the prophets. They began anew to build upon these foundations without succeeding in healing the deep wound of the members of the human family. They recognized their powerlessness. Each one clothed in the spirit observed that the wound was incurable and that no creature was able to heal it. The assembly of the saints in their turn came and lifted their prayer to the Creator. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? We tried to heal Babylon, but she was not healed. Let us forsake her and depart each to his own country. Just like St. Anthony, St. Nicholas Cabasilas notes that the law had been given to men by the prophets as a means of healing. But he observes, all that the law could do against our ills was to predispose us to health and render us worthy of the physician's care. But the law could not suffice as medicine. St. Macarios remarks in the same vein, Just as shadow fulfills no service and heals no suffering, so too has the former law been unable to heal the soul's wounds and illnesses, because the law did not have life. And St. Gregory Nazazine, Quote, Caught again, first of all, in many ways for his numerous sins that shot forth like the tendrils of a bad root. Corrected for diverse reasons and in various circumstances by the word, the law, the prophets, the benefactions, the threats, the chastisements, the signs. Man had need of a more effective remedy so as to heal the ills which were only getting worse. End of quote from his orations. To continue, according to Origen, the angels themselves wanted to offer their assistance to men and grant them health by healing them of their illnesses. Thus, they helped men to the extent of their strength. But just like the prophets, the angels too were shown to be powerless on account of man's ill will toward being healed. they did what was in their power to heal men, but men did not want to receive health. This was especially so on account of the particular seriousness of the illness affecting fallen humanity. They saw that the remedies to be quite inferior to what men's healing demanded. As St. John Climacus says, mankind needed a physician and a surgeon, whose skill would be commensurate with the seriousness of its illnesses and wounds, Christ alone being God, Theanthropos, The God-man was able to be this efficacious physician by becoming man while remaining God. As such, the Holy Fathers sent him among men moved by pity for the human race and responding to the suppliant voice of the prophets in the assembly of the saints. St. Cyril of Jerusalem thus continues the account. For what purpose did the prophets, worn out with their weeping, say, Who will bring the salvation of Israel out of Zion? And another prophet makes supplication thus, Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. Mankind's wounds surpass our remedies. Our wretchedness cannot be set aright by us. Thou art needed to set us aright. The Lord fulfilled the prayer of the prophets. The Father did not despise our wounded race. He sent his own Son from heaven as a physician. Let us recognize the presence of the king and physician, for Jesus the king, about to minister, donned the robe of humanity and healed what was ailing. St. Cyril notes further, While remaining God, while preserving in truth the immutable glory of sonship, he nonetheless readied himself as a very skillful physician of our weaknesses. St. Dorotheus of Gaza likewise says, Quote, In his goodness and love for man, God sends his only Son, for God alone was able to heal and conquer an ill of that sort. The prophets were not unaware of this. David said it clearly, Reveal thy might, and come to save us. And bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. And so many other similar passages. Our Savior, then, is is come, becoming man for our sake, so as to heal, as St. Gregory says, like by like the soul by the soul, the flesh by the flesh, end of quote. From Dorotheus of Gaza's Instruction. Saint Ammonas writes similarly, the fathers had sent his true son from heaven so that he might heal all of men's infirmities and illnesses. In several of his letters, Saint Anthony the Great often repeats this theme. To quote, The wound was incurable and no creature could heal it, save the only Son, the faithful image of the Father. He, the Savior, is a wise physician. They, the prophets, knew this, so they came together and presented one unanimous prayer to God for the members of the family of which we were all part. God, then overflowing with love, came to us. And the Father was touched by this supplication which the saints addressed to the Father's goodness regarding his only Son, for no creature is capable of healing man's deep wound, and said, Son of man, take thou this mission upon thee. And again from St. Anthony, the entire assembly of saints was joined as one and besought the Father's goodness, a Savior who would come and save us all, for he is the only physician able to heal our deep wound. By the Father's will, he deprived himself of his glory. God took on the appearance of a servant and gave himself up for our sins. Again, St. Anthony the Great. Seeing that the saints, or rather all his creatures, were unsuccessful in healing the deep wound of their members, and knowing the infirmity of their spirit, he, the Father of creatures, manifested his mercy to them, and in his great love did not spare his only Son, whom he gave up on account of our sins, for the salvation of all. Our Creator was moved in His inmost depth on our account. In His goodness, He desired to lead us back to our original state, which should have never disappeared. He did not spare Himself, but visited His creatures so as to save them all. And again from St. Anthony's letters, those who were clothed in the Spirit understood that no one among creatures was able to heal this deep wound except for the Father's goodness which is the only son sent to save the world. He is the great physician able to heal this deep wound. Thus they besought God and his goodness. The creator observed that the wound was festering and that recourse to a physician was necessary. Jesus, already the creator of men, comes again to heal them. End of quote. As for St. Macarius, he writes, the incurable wound with which we were stricken could be healed by the Savior alone. This is why he came in person, for none of the elders, nor the law, the Torah, nor the prophets were capable of remedying it. He alone healed this incurable wound of the soul by his coming." Of quote. He notes elsewhere, in like fashion, man was so grievously wounded that no one was able to heal him except the Savior. For him... Alone was it possible. He himself is come and takes away the sin of the world. Since all were powerless, the Savior had to come, the true physician who heals without fee. He alone consummated the great and salutary redemption and healing of the soul. He delivered it from servitude, brought it out from darkness, and glorified it by his own light. In another homily, he says, When Adam had violated the commandment, and become a transgressor, the children of the night, that is, the spirits of evil, broke the members of the soul and left it without strength or vigor for the good by enshrouding it in darkness and crushing it without remedy. It was not possible for any of the patriarchs or prophets to heal it. The only one capable of this was the Lord who had created the soul. And this is why in his infinite goodness he came in subsistence in such abjection and humility so as to set aright the soul that had fallen into perversity. End of quote. All the fathers, not merely the authors whom we just cited, thus see in Christ a physician who has come among men so as to heal them of their illnesses and the madness constituted by sin and its effects. They evoke the salvation he brings in therapeutic and healing terms and this ever since the earliest centuries. Thus, for example, St. Ignatius of Antioch writes to the Ephesians, There is but one physician, fleshly and spiritual, begotten and unbegotten, having come in the flesh, true life in death, born of Mary and born of God, our Lord. St. Justin says of Christ, He became man for us in order to heal us of our ills by sharing in them. The author of the letter to Diogenes writes, In times past, God convicted our nature of its powerlessness to obtain life. Now he has shown us the Savior who has the power to save even that which could not be saved. By this twofold means, he has desired that we have faith in his goodness and that we see in him a physician. To continue, Jesus was the only physician for our wounds notes Clement of Alexandria, who further remarks, God searches for his creature like a father and heals it of its fall. In his homily for the Feast of Theophany, on which the Church celebrates God's coming among men, St. Gregory Nazazin says, We celebrate our being healed of illness. And further, let us behold in this feast the works of healing. As for St. Gregory of Nyssa, he asserts, the true physician of the soul's illnesses who for the sake of those who were sick shared in the life of men removes the cause of pain so as to return us to health and further on since we were sick on account of having abandoned the healthy life we led in paradise the true physician is come driving away illness by its opposites in conformity with what is prescribed by the medical art St. John Damascene entitles a chapter of the work, An Exact Exposition of the Orthodox Faith, Divine Economy and Therapy with Our Salvation in Mind, in which he evokes Christ's saving incarnation, noting in particular Christ made himself obedient to the Father, healing our own disobedience. And many fathers evoke Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Christ. He bears our sins and suffers for us. Man's sin and its effects appear as an illness, but also, as we have seen, as a multiform madness. Henceforth, it is not surprising that Christ should be considered as he who is come to form a new broken man and recall his own creature from its spiritual wandering, Simeon the New Theologian's Ethical Treatise. Origen writes plainly, The human race, stricken with madness, had to be healed by the means which the Logos saw to be useful for leading the mad to good sense. And Clement of Alexandria thus invites him who is insane to the salvation that makes one of sound mind. So we've already noted the very name Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. The Hebrew word verb yasa, meaning to save, corresponds to the Greek verb used frequently in the New Testament to mean not only to deliver or to save from danger, but also to heal. Likewise, the Greek word for salvation signifies not only deliverance, but also healing. One can thus establish the parallel of Jesus to heal. Thus, St. Cyril of Jerusalem remarks, Jesus, according to the Hebrews, means the same as Savior, but according to the Greek language, physician. He says further, quite fittingly is he called Jesus, this appellation belongs to him for he saves in healing. We've already noted that Christ presents himself unequivocally as a physician, that the prophets often proclaim him as such, and that the evangelists characterize him in this way. The gospel parable of the Good Samaritan itself can be considered a representation of Christ the physician, according to Origen. Let us recall here, in conclusion, that a good number of the Lord's contemporaries during his earthly life came to him as to a physician. The Orthodox Church has integrated this way of viewing Christ and the corresponding medical concept of salvation in its array. Of sacramental rites and liturgical services footnote let us cite but a few examples taken from the sunday vespers and matins quote by the fault of our first father lord we have been grievously wounded but by the wounds with which thou wast wounded o christ are we healed and Thou healest the bite received of our free will by Thy passion voluntarily suffered. And we are all healed by Thy wounds. And in the Virgin's breast, O oh Master, Thou hast healed our sick nature. O oh Word, Thou hast united it to Thine Immaculate Divinity, the sole efficacious remedy. And, Lord, Thou hast healed mankind of its righteousness by renewing it through Thy Divine Blood. And. When thou didst mount the cross, thou didst heal me of the passions by the passion of thine immaculate flesh, voluntarily assumed." End of Even the heart of the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, Christ is called upon as the physician of our souls and bodies. Christ, the Word incarnate, is able to work this healing of human nature, sick with sin and its consequences, because he is both God and man, uniting in his one person the two natures, divine and human. Fallen man's healing necessitated the Lord becoming man and truly assuming human nature. With this in mind, St. Maximus writes, it was necessary, it really was, that the Lord, who is wise, just, and powerful by nature, not be unaware of the method of healing in his wisdom. Further on, he states in greater detail, quote, The Lord has made manifest the reason of wisdom and the method of healing by becoming man without any kind of change or transformation. From his questions to Thalassius. If he is only God without also being man at the same time, then he has not assumed humanity and we remain strangers to salvation, asserts St. Cyril of Jerusalem. For as St. Gregory Nazarene says, That which is not assumed is not healed. A formula taken up again, word for word, by Saint John Damascene, who further states, "He has assumed everything in order that everything might be healed." Indeed, Christ heals like by like. That is to say, He heals man by becoming man, by clothing Himself in the fullness of humanity. Saint Sophronios of Jerusalem writes. Our nature's infirmity, which could not be any worse, had need of the greatest remedy, and this remedy consisted in the Creator's becoming equal to us creatures, and in God becoming man like us. As St. John Damascene notes, Christ heals us with what he has received from us, and as one of us. Elsewhere he specifies, The entire divine essence united itself to all of human nature, Truly, God the Logos, who fashioned us in the beginning, avoided nothing of what he had placed in our nature, but rather took everything, the body, the soul, the spirit, reason, and their characteristics. He took all of me and united himself totally to me so as to give me a total salvation, for he cannot heal what he has not assumed. Further on he repeats, He has assumed everything in order that everything might be healed. Christ then becomes all that we are for everyone, body, soul, and spirit, assuming everything forming our human nature. Christ, born of a virgin and thereby free from the effects of the ancestral sin, assumed human nature in the state in which God had created it, and such as Adam possessed it in the beginning, one nature, striving toward the good and free of all sinful disposition, but also impassable, incorruptible, and immortal. Thus St. John, St. Gregory of nazarene exclaims on the occasion of the Feast of the Nativity when the Church celebrates Christ's Incarnation, what feasts for celebrating the Christian mysteries. But all of these feasts, the most important is today's, it is my fulfillment my return to the primal state to ancient adam moreover the human nature assumed by the word was perfect and deified through its hypostatic union with the divine nature the divine nature's energies wholly penetrated the human one while nonetheless leaving intact the human nature's natural properties saint gregory Nazianzen, saint maximus the confessor and saint john damascene evoke this accomplished in Christ person between his two natures, this perichoresis, which are distinct but not separate, united without confusion, St. John Damascene explains. Quote, if we say that Christ's two natures interpenetrate each other, nonetheless we know that this perichoresis proceeds from the divine nature, for it spreads out and penetrates everywhere as it wishes, but nothing penetrates it. It transmits to the flesh its own glories, itself remaining impassable, end of quote. By taking human nature into his hypostases and thus uniting it to the divine nature, Christ by his incarnation overturned the first of the three barriers that separated man from God, nature, sin, and death. He grants to human nature once again to receive in itself the uncreated divine grace which has, which was made exterior to human nature by the ancestral sin. Christ meanwhile joins to this natural assuming of humanity an economical one. Out of love for men, he pursues his kenosis, his self-emptying, and voluntarily humbles himself to the point of somehow renouncing this already impassable, incorruptible, immortal and deified nature so as to assume fallen human nature as found in those suffering from the effects of the ancestral sin in other words he takes upon himself passable corruptible and mortal nature however if he assumes these consequences of sin and if in this sense he becomes as the apostle says sin for us 2 corinthians 5:21 Yet he does not assume sin itself. St. Gregory Nazazin explains from his orations, He is free of fault and corruption, for he heals the failings, passions, and defilements that come to us from sin. But if he has taken upon himself our faults and borne our illnesses, he has not, however, been stricken with that which necessitates the cure. For though he was tempted in all things so as to be like us, yet he did not commit sin. Quote. Thus, Christ assumes human passions but without the predisposition toward sin. Put another way, he assumes the natural and irreproachable passions, but not the wicked ones. He therefore voluntarily took on hunger, thirst, fatigue, fear, dread, tears, pain, suffering, even in their most atrocious forms, And finally, death. In other words, he accepted all the imperfections and limitations coming from sin in order to be able to free us from them. He took on all of our nature's illnesses, weaknesses, and infirmities so that we might be healed of them. For this reason, St. Macarius notes, he himself gave healing remedies and tended those who were wounded through his own advent, being one of them. And St. Anthony states in detail, quote, On account of our madness, he took on the signs of madness. On account of our weakness, he wore the signs of weakness. On account of our poverty, he put on the signs of poverty. On account of the death that henceforth belongs to us, he donned the signs of one mortal. St. Anthony, letter number nine. To continue. And the previously cited patristic formula, according to which what had not been assumed could not have been healed, applies not only to the human nature taken by Christ in its totality, body, soul, and spirit, into his hypostases, but also to this nature in its fallen state of existence, which Christ also deigned to assume for this very reason. If Christ, therefore, assumed the consequences of sin, He did so in order to destroy them in himself. He can do this because while being and remaining pure of all sin, he is not subject to sin's consequences and offers no access to evil within himself. Since in all the temptations and trials to which he voluntarily submits, he keeps all his human faculties immutably oriented toward the good and his human will unswervingly subject to the divine will. St. Cyril of Alexandria writes, quote, The soul having become the soul of the word who knows no error, henceforth firmly holds the steadfast foundation of every kind of good. It is incomparably stronger than sin, our tyrant. He notes further, taking to himself the human soul, he made it triumphant over sin by imbuing it as with a die, with the stability and immutability of his nature. The Holy Fathers insist especially on this fact, that Christ kept his human will in constant conformity with his divine will. In other words, since his divine will is also that of the Father who sent him, Christ showed himself in his humanity to be constantly and in all things obedient to his Father. Through this obedience, he healed our nature, for the ancestral sin consisted in Adam's disobedience to God. Sin's deadly consequences are due to the separation of the human will from union with the divine will. Through this deviation in the beginning, human nature turned away from its natural end goal and led an abnormal existence in which it has been deprived of grace and true life. Just as Adam's disobedience separated man from God, so Christ's perfect obedience to his Father reconciled man with God. Set aright man's perverted nature, and reunited man, wholly to God. St. John Damascene writes, Christ as man in himself and through himself subjected his humanity to God the Father. And St. Gregory of Nyssa evokes in the following terms our nature's healing, accomplished thus by the Logos, the word incarnate. Quote, the health of the soul is such that the divine will find an easy path in us, whereas on the contrary, to fall outside this goodwill is the sickness that leads the soul to death. So, since we were sick because we left the healthy life we led in paradise, because the poison of disobedience filled us to the brim, and that by it our nature was plagued by this pernicious and mortal illness, the true physician is come, driving away illness by its opposite, according to the law of medicine. Behold, men overcome by infirmity because they had separated themselves from the divine will, are freed again from every illness through their attachment to God's desires. End of quote. St. John of Damascene uses similar words to the same effect. Christ became obedient to the Father, healing our own disobedience. And St. Cyril of Alexandria, quote, As human nature fell ill with corruption through disobedience in Adam, so it has regained health in Christ. Indeed, it became obedient to God and to the Father and knew not sin. The Word incarnate works the healing of human nature all throughout his earthly mission and throughout all his salvific acts. Through his baptism, even though he himself is pure, he purifies, regenerates, and illumines human nature, delivering it from the grip of the powers of evil and the unawareness of God accepting temptation in the wilderness according to his natural passions, but victoriously resisting the temptations and preventing evil from having any access to him. He liberates man from the tyrannical might of the tempting powers, as well as from the passions owing to the thirst for pleasure. Freely accepting his passion and voluntarily undergoing suffering in his passable human nature, he conquers suffering by his impassable divine nature liberating man from the tyrannical power it wielded against him, as well as from the passions resulting from pain, namely, simultaneously from the passions that aim forthrightly to avoid pain and from those that endeavor to console through the search for pleasure. Thus the church sings, When thou didst ascend the cross, thou healest me of the passions by the passion of thine immaculate flesh which thou dost willingly accept. Christ, healing man thus of his passions, causes him to regain the normal use of his faculties. In other words, he grants them to be reoriented toward God. St. Maximus thus writes, He who created man himself became passion in order to heal our passions by his passion. Erasing in the flesh our measureless passions in this way, he renews in his love for mankind our faculties in the spirit. Among all the acts of the Incarnate Word saving work, his passion, death, and resurrection play a central role. Indeed, through these acts he overturns the two remaining barriers, sin and death, and totally reconciles us with God. Romans 5.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.18 He thus restores full health to us, namely the health of our original nature, inferring upon us incorruptibility and immortality. In evoking Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, St. Gregory Nazazine writes, quote, All this was a means for God to heal our weakness by re-establishing the old Adam in the state whence he had fallen and by leading him to the tree of life. The mystery of redemption remains fundamentally incomprehensible to man. One cannot adequately explain it. According to St. Maximus, Christ's death on the cross in particular seems like a judgment of all judgment. This mystery must also be venerated in respectful silence, following St. Gregory Nazazin's recommendation. Thus, the fathers usually approach it with an apophatic attitude, relying on images whose relative and in- inadequate character must be borne in mind. Meanwhile, let us note that the perspective of Usually adopted by Western Christianity, which understands redemption in essential, in essentially juridical and ethical categories, such as a satisfaction or payment, seeing in Christ's sacrifice a debt paid by the Son to the Father with the appeasement of his anger or satisfaction of his justice in mind, has in general remained foreign to the vision of the Eastern Fathers and the Orthodox Church tradition, St. Gregory Nazazin, who rejects such a conception of redemption, asks, quote, Is it not obvious that the Father accepts the sacrifice not because he demanded it or felt some need for it, but rather by economy? It was necessary that mankind be hallowed by a God who had assumed human nature. It was necessary that he himself free us by triumphing over the tyrant by his own strength, and that he call us back to himself through his Son, the Mediator, accomplishing all things according to the Father's will, to which he is obedient in all things. End of quote from Orations. Dr. Larche continues, Christ, then, does not accomplish some juridical satisfaction in his death, but rather an ontological restoration of human nature, which he assumed. If the Son of God alone was able to ransom man, and if he had to die in the flesh to accomplish this, This is not because he alone would be on the level of sinful humanity's debt to God and his death alone capable of paying it. Rather, he was able to deliver man from death since only God was powerful enough to remedy the human race's ills, for God alone has immortality. Only by assuming death could he do this, as the fathers stress, what is not assumed cannot be healed. Thus. Just as corruption seemed to most of the fathers as an illness contracted by man's pursuit of sin and as being a natural and inevitable consequence of it rather than a punishment inflicted by God, so too is the redemption wrought by Christ understood by them as the voluntary assumption by the word made flesh of the common destiny of suffering and mortal mankind. This he does in order by the power of his divinity to destroy in mankind's sins after-effects, spiritual illnesses, corruption, and death, and in order to give back to man a new life in which his nature would once again find full health. Nor is it surprising to see Christ's saving passion and death evoked in therapeutic terms, or to see their blessed effects on the human race spoken of in terms of healing. St. Athanasius notes that the cross of Christ has been healing for our nature, Quote, his wounds were our healing, writes St. Anthony the Great many times, taking up this prophecy of Isaiah, with his stripes are we healed, Isaiah 53, 5. Origen speaks similarly, quote, by his death, a death which had been given to us as an antidote against adverse actions and sins. And the church during matins for the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross celebrates the cross through which men receive healing of soul and body and of every illness. By voluntarily assuming death, which is at once the origin and consequence of sin, Christ destroys corruption, death, sin, and its consequences for all men, since he is at once corruptible and mortal in his, human, in his humanity, but incorruptible, immortal, and Lord of life and death in his divinity, Having voluntarily taken on death in his humanity, the Savior was not held by death, since he was God. When the Savior's body was laid in the tomb, it was corruptible, since Christ had assumed corruptibility. But, since it was the body of the Word incarnate, and the divine hypostasis of the Logos was not separated from it, but remained united to the body, his body therefore remained inaccessible to corruption. At the same time, the Savior's soul was not seized by the power seeking to lay hold of it during its sojourn in Hades, for it remained hypostatically united to the divine logos, the divine word. Presenting himself to death, corruption, and the powers of hell as a simple mortal, Christ destroyed them as God, the Father's. Resorting to symbolism because it is impossible for men to explain this victory of Christ's in rational terms, often say that death, corruption, and the devil were ensnared. St. John Damascene writes, Death advances, swallows the bait of the body, and is wounded on the hook of divinity. And having tasted the body which has not sinned and which gives life, becomes corrupt, and vomits everything it had swallowed of old. Darkness is obliterated when light arrives. Thus did corruption perish under life's onslaught. End of quote from the exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. St. Maximus, who shows how Christ, even in his temptation in the wilderness, caused the devil to become entangled in his own machinations, presenting himself to him as a simple man, yet subjugating Satan after his attack, uses the same image later to be employed by St. John Damascene so as to show how Christ vanquished the powers of evil in death. He also shows how Christ thereby reversed the process of the fall. Thus he who had previously seduced man by causing him to hope to become divine and thus swallowed him was in turn enticed by man's very flesh and had to vomit up what he had devoured. The divine power was thus brilliantly made manifest. It triumphed over the strength of the conqueror by taking up the weaknesses of conquered nature as its weapon. Henceforth, God conquers through his human nature and not the devil, through the promise of divine nature made man. End of quote. In Christ's death, the old man. Ancient Adam, the fallen and sick form of humanity, suffering under the tyranny of the devil, sin, and death, dies for good. Our old man was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Once and for all, Christ abolished sin through his sacrifice. Romans six six and Hebrews 9.26 Through death he destroyed him, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Hebrews 2.14, following. Thus St. Athanasios writes, Two wonders meet each other in the same being. The death of all was being accomplished in the body of the Savior, while death and corruption were being destroyed by the Word who dwelt in this body. Sin, corruption, death, and the power of the devil are destroyed in Christ's death. The old man is put to death. The old life, connected to sin and subject to death, is destroyed. The devil is bound and his power annihilated. But this essential and indispensable moment of salvation does not suffice in and of itself. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15. Only in Christ's resurrection does salvation find its end and fulfillment. Through it, impassibility, incorruptibility, and immortality are permanently procured for man, who thereby can attain to a new life. The Apostle says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And St. Gregory Nazazin, Quote, Christ has left the tomb. Be ye delivered from the chains of sin. The gates of Hades are opened, and death's hold destroyed. The old Adam is banished, and the new one is fulfilled. A new creature is born in Christ. End of quote. In the resurrected Christ, man has come back to life, and he lives to God. The redemptive work of Christ is not creation, but recreation. The renewal of man's nature, the restoration of the first Adam to God's image and likeness, man's reintegration of his true being, mode of existence, life, and destiny. In his nature restored by union to the divine nature in the person of Christ, dead and resurrected, man recovers full health in his entire being, all his illnesses having been obliterated. He becomes a normal man in Christ, He finds his faculties in their original state again, in conformity with their nature, which let us recall is to be oriented toward God. With regard to Christ, St. Dorotheus of Gaza says the following, He took our very being, the first fruits of our nature, and has become a new Adam after the image of its creator, restoring the state of nature and restoring to the faculties their original integrity. And many of the fathers emphasize in like manner that by becoming incarnate, the Savior has led nature back to itself and thus restored it to the health of its original condition known by Adam in paradise. St. John Damascene writes, After the transgression, we fell from what accorded with nature into what is contrary to nature. And the Savior has caused us to climb up from what is contrary to what is in accord. Abba Isaiah Likewise notes, The Word made flesh, that is, the perfect man, becomes like us in everything except sin, so as to lead what was contrary to nature back to conformity with nature by his holy body, and having had mercy on man, he brings him back to paradise. But at the same time, the resurrected Christ brings restored humanity to full realization, that is, deification, theosis in himself, having carried out his kenosis, his self-emptying, to the greatest point of humility, that of his freely assumed death and descent into Hades, Christ rises again with a humanity healed and freed in him of all its ills and obtaining eternal life by his resurrection. By his ascension, he raises this deified humanity up to the Father, seating it at his right hand. The salvation accomplished by Christ is extended to all men of every time. Quote, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin. Hebrews 9.26 He secured an eternal redemption. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.10 Just as Adam had made all of human nature ill, so Christ the new Adam has healed, saved, and deified all of human nature for all time. Yet Christ's therapeutic action does not apply solely to the nature that he recapitulates in himself. It also applies to each person who turns towards him. St. Athanasius of Alexandria notes, quote, The living and acting Son of God is at work every day, bringing about the salvation of all. And he accomplishes this salvation by allowing each person to take part personally in this healing wrought by him of all of nature. He shows himself attentive to the specific illnesses of each, bestowing his grace on each person according to his particular needs and to the degree of the desire such a person demonstrates for obtaining treatment. St. Nicholas Cabasilis thus writes in his Commentary on the Divine Liturgy, Christ is the mediator through whom all the good things have come to us that we have been given or rather that are ceaselessly given by God. For he was not content to fill his role of mediator only once by giving us all the goods on whose account he fulfilled this role and then to withdrawal. No, he ceaselessly intervenes and not only in words and requests as do ambassadors but in deed. What is this deed? To unite us to him. And through his person to make known to us the grace proper to him, according to each person's merit and the degree of his purification. End of quote. Saint John of Carpathus, emphasizing this current action of Christ the physician, writes quote, The great physician of those who suffer is near. He has taken our sicknesses upon himself. He has healed us, and he is healing us by his stripes. He is here and is now applying the salutary remedies. As for St. Maximus, he shows that the heavenly physician gives to each the appropriate cure. Quote, As physicians who care for the body do not give a single and self-same re- remedy to everyone, so God, who heals the sicknesses of soul, does not possess a single treatment that suits everyone. Rather, he brings about healing when he has Granted to each soul what is necessary to it. So let us care, let us who are thus cared for give thanks. Christ is considered not only as a physician of human nature, in general, within the framework of the theology of the redemption of all mankind, he is also extolled and invoked as such by and for each person who desires to obtain from Christ the healing of his particular ills or those of his neighbor. Many liturgical and patristic texts bear witness to this. Footnote. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyons, Theophilus of Antioch all say, if you want, you can get well. Commend yourself to the hands of the physician. He will open the eyes of your soul and your heart. Who is the physician? God who heals and vivifies by the word and wisdom. And Clement of Alexandria, the word heals our passions, and as a healer does he promise the healing of the passions within us. And just as those who are sick in body have need of a physician, so too do we, whose soul is weak, need a pedagogue to heal our passions. Behold the word, our pedagogue, who treats the contranatural passions of our soul. Medicine, properly speaking, is the care of bodily illnesses. It is an art taught by human wisdom. But the word of the Father is the only physician of man's moral infirmities. He is the healer who delivers the sick soul. And medicine, according to Democritus, treats bodily illnesses, but wisdom rids the soul of its passions. Our good pedagogue, who is the wisdom and logos of the Father and who created man, takes care of his whole creature, treating at once soul and body, mankind's physician capable of healing everything. And he heals the soul in itself by his precepts and his graces. Also from Clement of Alexandria, the word who deeply loves mankind heals the passions at the same time that he purifies from sins. And we who in this life are sick have need of the Savior. He applies to us sweet but also bitter remedies. And the word has been called Savior, he who has developed these spiritual remedies for men. He ordains what must be abstained from and brings all salutary antidotes to the sick. And it is he who heals our bodies and souls, the whole man. And... Which, Lord, the one who heals all illnesses? Indeed, there are many illnesses within the soul. When, Lord Jesus, wilt thou treat me for all these illnesses? When wilt thou heal me, that I might say to thee, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who heals all your diseases? Psalms 102. And from Anthony the Great, Athanasius of Alexandria, Methodius of Olympus, and Basil of Caesarea, The great physician of souls is ready to heal your pain. And the great physician of souls desires to make man perfect. Cyril of Jerusalem, your wounds do not surpass the physician's know-how. Give yourself over in faith. Tell the physician what ails you. Simeon Metophrastes. if Christ who came among us cared for and healed the blind, the lame, and the deaf, how much more so will he heal the immortal soul, taken captive by the illness of malice and ignorance. And the soul poor in spirit seeks the one good physician and trusts only in his care. The Lord comes to care for it, to heal it, and to reestablish it in an impassable and incorruptible beauty. And just as he freely granted as the only and good physician to those who came to him and asked of him deliverance and healing all that they desired during his earthly sojourn, in his sweet goodness, so too does he act likewise in the spiritual domain. And he is come on account of sinners, in order that they may be healed by believing in him. He is merciful, life-giving, a healer of incurable passions. And Christ came to the sick man and healed him. And he is called physician because he gives the divine and healing remedy and heals the soul's passions and the true physician who alone is capable of healing our souls. The true true physician, Christ, the true Lord, the true physician. Again, Gregory Nazarene. The true physician of illnesses of the soul, Evagrius John Cassian. In truth, curative remedies cannot be lacking to those who look for healing from the most true physician of souls. John Chrysostom like the wise physician who varies his prescriptions according to the state of his patient, and run to the physician of souls, and the divine physician of our souls, and the physician of our souls, and God is the true physician, the only physician of body and soul, like a wise physician, quote, this divine physician. Mark the ascetic Physician of our souls, Theodore of Cyrus, Diodocus of Photiki, and Barsanuphius all say, quote, Those who approach our great physician are illumined by him, and he heals them of their spiritual illnesses. Jesus is physician of souls and bodies, the great physician who bears our illnesses, the great heavenly and spiritual physician who heals souls and bodies. John of Gaza the master and physician of souls, Jesus the Lord. Dorotheus of Gaza, John of Carpathos, the great physician of those who suffer. John Moscos, the great physician of souls, Christ our God is near and he wants to heal us. Isaac the Syrian, he comes to our aid as a physician who works at the time of a grave illness and restores health. And glory to the master who through bitter remedies has given us the delights of health. Maximus the Confessor, like a good and loving physician, he heals with individual treatment. And by means of his prescriptions, the Physicians of of Souls administers the remedy according to the cause of the passions lying hidden in the soul. And John of Damascene, Simeon the New Theologian, quote, covered in wounds, stricken with various illnesses, we appeal to him who is the Physician of Souls and Bodies, we call to him that he might come to heal our wounded heart and give health to our soul, which lies on the pallet of sin and death. Nikitas Tathatos, quote, the physician of our souls, Elias the Presbyter, Nicholas Cabasilas, and Gregory Palamas, quote, that they might believe in Christ as the only physician of spirits. And a footnote to continue. He is usually called in them an excellent physician, the greatest of physicians, the very skillful physician, more skillful than all physicians, the true physician, the only physician, the prince of physicians, and so on, because he is capable of healing all. Sicknesses of the soul as well as the body, fundamentally, that is, at their very causes at the deepest level and not merely on a symptomatic level, And permanently since no illness can resist his therapy. The value of this therapy is absolute in contrast to all human therapies whose effects are always temporary partial and uncertain and which above all prove incapable of treating man in his totality and spirit. Likewise every man who has lost hope in human medicine or has not found a physician capable of delivering him from his ills can be sure to find in Christ the healing of every illness affecting him, no matter its nature and severity, and a health whose quality infinitely surpasses that obtainable by human means. St. John Chrysostom, the Golden Mouth, commenting on the second and third verses of Psalm 6, in which the prophet David invokes God as physician, saying, O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled, my soul also is sorely troubled establishes in this sense a parallel between human and divine medicine. Quote from St. John Chrysostom, Often in the illnesses treated by physicians, the sick person betakes himself to medicine and remedies without any profit from them. Because his constitution is weakened, the art has become powerless and the remedies have lost their strength under the influence of some deadly situation. It is not so when the physician is God No matter how short a time you are with him, your wound is healed without fail. For this here is no human art subject to uncertainty, but a divine one, effective, stronger than constitutions, illnesses, moral infirmities, and all imperfections. This is why David addresses God as a physician. And St. Macario speaks similarly. The Lord himself showing the powerlessness of the physicians of his day, said, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, Luke 4.23. He meant, I am not like those who cannot heal themselves. I am the true physician. I can heal every illness and every weakness of soul. I am the spotless lamb that has been immolated once and for all. And I can heal all who come to me, Indeed, the true healing of the soul can only be wrought by the Lord. Christ, as a compassionate and merciful physician, wishes to minister to all men without excluding anyone from salvation. He expends all his efforts and displays the greatest patience, even towards those who deny and insult him by their thoughts, words, or deeds. To those who until now have lived in the madness of sin and are sick with the passions, He grants his pardon, calling them to the salvation which makes one of sound mind. St. John Chrysostom observes, quote, from exhortations to Theodore, the goal of a physician is not to avenge himself, but to draw us toward himself. A physician is neither offended nor upset by the insults of the sick who rave in delirium, and leaves no stone unturned in his efforts to prevent them from demeaning Themselves, considering not his own personal gain but theirs. If they regain but a bit of their good sense and their calm, his heart is filled with satisfaction and joy. He increases his care and remedies. Far from taking revenge on their insults, he adds kindness to kindness until he succeeds in restoring them to health. So too, when we have fallen into utter madness, God, without thinking of avenging the past, says and does nothing that would not aim at healing us of our illness. End of quote. End of chapter 1. Christ the Physician. Chapter 2. Sacramental Therapies. 1. Introduction. Christ, in his person, brought about the healing of human nature and gave it a health that is permanent, true, and complete. Human persons can profit from these benefits procured by Christ for human nature and recapitulated in Him only on the condition that they unite themselves to Him. This union can only be realized in the Church, Christ's theanthropic body, and through the activity of the Holy Spirit. It is fundamentally in the sacraments that we come into an ontological relationship with Christ Himself by the energy of the Holy Spirit invoked in the sacraments by the Church and with the aid of the visible signs constituting the sacramental rites. By becoming members of the Church through the sacraments, we are incorporated into Christ through the sacraments. We become members of his body and are made partakers of Christ, the Savior and deifier of our nature. In other words, in receiving the sacraments, we are first of all purified and cleansed by the grace of the Spirit. This end goal foremost in the sacraments of repentance and the anointing of the sick, have an essentially reparative function. It is also affirmed in the other sacraments, especially in holy baptism, in which man is healed of the effects of the ancestral sin, and in the Eucharist, traditionally considered as a remedy. Thus, the Church considers the majority of the sacraments as medicines varying in degree. On this level, as on others, the Church, in the words of St. John Chrysostom, appear as, quote, a spiritual pharmacy in which medicines are prepared in order that we might find something to heal the wounds dealt us by the world, of quote. This therapeutic goal of the sacraments allows the person receiving them to gain access to their other goal, that of receiving deifying grace. If it is true that in the Church we are saved and deified in Christ, then we are united to Christ by the Spirit in whom Christ gives us the grace that is divine, saving, and deifying. This Spirit, whom the Father communicates to us through the Son, whom the Son sends on behalf of the Father, and who, by uniting us to the Son, unites us to the Father, is also received by us through the sacraments, especially in chrismation, the specific aim of which is to communicate him to the baptized person but Christ is also communicated in all the other sacraments, particularly baptism and the Holy Eucharist. The sacraments thus can cause us to put on not only Christ, but also the Spirit, uniting us through them to the Father. Through the sacraments, the grace common to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is communicated to us, making us participants in the life of the Trinity. On account of this, the sacraments are thought of less as isolated acts, each conferring a particular grace on us, than as different aspects of the one mystery, according to which the triune God communicates salvific and deifying grace to mankind. This is one of the reasons why the Orthodox Church has not set down a precise number of sacraments. Nonetheless, the following can be recognized as the most important. Baptism, Chrismation, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, confession, anointing of the sick, or Holy Unction, marriage, and ordination. Among these, baptism, chrismation, and Holy Communion play an essential role. They are the sacraments of the Christian initiation, in which the entire divine economy is recapitulated. In the Orthodox Church, chrismation is conferred right after baptism, which is why the term Baptism usually implies the combination of the two sacraments, and the newly baptized and chrismated person, no matter how young, is immediately admitted to the Eucharistic communion, having become a full member of the Church. In this, the Christian initiation forms an indivisible whole. 2. Baptism Baptism is the first and most basic of the sacraments, since through it man is incorporated into Christ in the church and receives from the Spirit what his saving work has given to mankind. On the other hand, he is delivered from the effects of the ancestral sin, purified of his sins and freed from the devil's tyranny. On the other hand, he is reborn to a new life, being restored in his nature. A. Baptism is shown first of all to be a remedy, the first of the spiritual remedies, chronologically and ontologically preceding all others. It is the one remedy suitable for healing, says Clement of Alexandria in his pedagogue, as well as Saint Nicholas Cabasilis in Life in Christ. And Saint Gregory Nazazin addresses the person who has not yet received this sacrament in the following terms from his orations, why ask for remedies that will not help you in the least Heal yourself before necessity constrains you to do so. Have mercy on yourself. You yourself are the only physician of your weakness. Procure for yourself the remedy that will really save you. of In receiving baptism, man is truly healed of all the ancestral sin's pathological consequences. This therapeutic function of baptism appears throughout the sacrament. The catechumenate's rites of exorcism preceding baptism already signify the expulsion and alienation of the demonic powers that tyrannized man's fallen nature. In these prayers, the priest already invokes the, quote, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who heals every ill and sickness. When the priest then proceeds to the blessing of the baptismal water, he beseeches God that this water, be sanctified by the power, activity, and descent of the Holy Spirit, so that the Trinity's purifying operation might come upon it, and that it be for the remission of sins, the healing of sicknesses, the destruction of demons, the freeing from fetters. Proceeding thence to the blessing of the oil with which the catechumen is to be anointed, he beseeches God that it be blessed, By the power activity and descent of the holy spirit especially so that it might become the healing of all ills then the priest anointing the catechumen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit successfully on the breast between the shoulders on the ears the hands and on the feet asks that the first of these anointings be for the healing of soul and body <clears throat> After this anointing, the priest goes on to the triple immersion of the catechumen into the previously blessed water, saying, The servant or handmaiden of God is baptized in the name of the Father, Amin, and of the Son, Amin, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen." This triple immersion, besides its obvious Trinitarian meaning, signifies and ritually accomplishes the baptized person's participation in Christ's death buried three days in the tomb with his body, and descending for three days into Hades with his soul. For as the Apostle teaches, quote, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Romans six three. Since the baptized person is thus grafted by the Holy Spirit into Christ, the vanquisher of sin, of all of fallen nature's illnesses, of the devil, of corruption and death, He is truly purified of his sins, healed of the illnesses inherited from the old Adam, permanently freed from the enemy's tyranny and the slavery of sin, and delivered from the power of corruption and death. Through his participation in Christ's death, the old man dies in him, ancient Adam vanishes, and the body of sin is reduced to powerlessness. Baptism is a remedy because it makes man a participant in the remedy constituted by Christ's death for the sake of human nature. Thus St. Nicholas Cabasilis notes, Many are they who from time immemorial have sought a remedy for the human race, but only the death of Christ has given us true life and health. This is why if one wants to be reborn with this new birth, to live this new blessed life and prepare oneself to recover one's health, one must only take this remedy offered by Christ. End of quote. B. The first function of baptism is indissolubly linked to the second, having its end goal in it. Namely, the baptized person dies with Christ so as to rise with him and live the new life that his resurrection has procured for mankind. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, Romans 6. In this sacrament, the person receiving it participates indissolubly in Christ's death and resurrection. At the same time as it allows him to die to his former condition, baptism, baptism, allows man to be born again to a new life. His birth coincides with his death. While simultaneously submerging the old Adam and his illnesses, the water of baptism causes the new man, full of health, to emerge by the grace of the Spirit. Quote, I am delivered from my offenses this minute and instantly find health again, exclaims St. Nicholas Cabasilis. This overlap, And concurrently, this final goal appears all throughout the rite, both in the prayers to bless the water and the oil, as well as in the ritual act itself. First of all, the anointing that communicates the Holy Spirit made on the breast and between the shoulders for the healing of soul and body is, is then made on the ears for the hearing of faith, on the hands for a reuniting to the Creator. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me and on the feet so that the baptized person, quote, might walk in the way of his precepts. Then, at the holy baptism proper, each of the three immersions, making the baptized a participant in Christ's death, is followed by an emergence from the water, making him a participant in Christ's resurrection, elevating him to the new, incorruptible, and immortal life bestowed upon mankind through this arising. Man truly becomes a new creature through baptism. He is totally regenerated and renewed. Whereas he was dead, reduced by sin to unreality, man is given life and existence anew in baptism. Whereas he was a slave to sin and subject to the enemy's tyranny, he is made free in the font. Whereas he was plunged into the darkness of the unawareness of God, he receives illumination from the Spirit. The doors of paradise are once again open to him. He returns to Adam's original state, coming back to intimacy with God and finding again the boldness he had before him in paradise. The newly baptized person gains even more, for he puts on Christ, partaking directly of him and being in conformity with him. At the same time he receives the Holy Spirit and through him receives the Father whose adopted son he once again becomes. The baptized enters into God's family. He becomes a partaker in the divine, the fullness of the Trinitarian grace being communicated to him. We thus see why baptism seems to be the remedy par excellence for fallen man. Through holy baptism, fallen man is freed from the subhuman, and unnatural condition to which he had been reduced by sin, so as to become a true man again and regain both his normal condition as well as his authentic being. St. Nicholas Cabasilis writes that baptism is nothing other than being born according to Christ and receiving our true being and nature. He further stresses that the new life conferred by baptism in contrast to one's previous life is a life in conformity with our nature. St. Gregory of Nyssa notes in the same vein that those who bring their life into harmony by means of baptismal purification quote, advance to what constitutes their profound being. And Saint Nicholas Cabasilis writes later that baptism distributes true life and existence to men. Indeed, not only does the image of God and man that had been darkened by sin regain its brilliance, through baptism by being more clearly imprinted than in former times but the very likeness to god is also given back to man just as he possessed it before the fall man thus becomes himself again and regains the health of his true and original nature receiving afresh the possibility of leading a truly healthy and normal existence in conformity with his being's end goal namely To live for God and to be deified in Him and by Him. Man ceases to be determined, influenced, and deluded by the demonic powers. Once possessed and estranged from himself, he now takes possession of himself again, his freedom being fully restored. St. Simeon the New Theologian writes, "...regenerated by holy baptism, we are emancipated and made masters of ourselves. And unless we obey the enemy of our own accord, he can in no wise hold any sway over us. Freed from sin and illumined by the Holy Spirit, man is healed from the erroneous and delirious knowledge produced by the passions and acquires a new knowledge, Colossians 3.10, in accordance with God and genuine. Baptism returns us to the light and distances us from the malice of darkness, observes St. Nicholas Cabasilis, who notes further, quote, it opens the eyes of the soul before the divine ray. And St. Diodokos of Photiki writes, just as in times past error reigned over the soul, so too does truth reign over it after baptism. Regaining true knowledge, man regains at the same time his true life. Since life consists in knowing the one true God. The entire life of the baptized person is transfigured. He becomes a new creature in all respects. On this note, St. John the Golden Mouth remarks, quote, the grace of God has refashioned souls and turned them around, making them other than they were, End of quote. Man's being is reorganized, receiving a superior deiform order and meaning in conformity to its final goal. St. Nicholas Cabasilis writes, quote, The salutary day of baptism becomes, for Christians, a day of naming, because they are then created and formed, and our amorphous and undetermined life takes form and substance. End of quote. Man is no longer doomed to lead the pathological existence to which his birth in sin destined him. He attains another world, and another existence, he becomes a citizen of the kingdom, the doors of which are opened to him by holy baptism. Through the sacrament he receives new members and senses, which henceforth prepare him for his eternal condition. Through baptism, writes St. Nicholas Cabasilis, we give up our state in order to find another. St. John Damascene writes, The new birth becomes the seal, safeguard, and light of another life. For the new man, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 St. John Chrysostom remarks, This newness of life knows no old age. It is not subject to illness. It is not prey to discouragement. It does not fade with time. It does not give in to anything. Neither does anything triumph over it from his baptismal catechesis. 3. Chrismation. Chrismation is inseparable from baptism. The Orthodox Church confers it immediately after the latter in conformity with a very ancient tradition. Indeed, Chrismation is complementary to baptism, to such an extent that St. Simeon of Thessaloniki writes, He who does not receive the holy chrism is not perfectly baptized. Through chrismation, the baptized person receives the Holy Spirit. It is, in a way, his personal Pentecost. Chrismation, stresses St. Nicholas Cabasilis, is a source of energy and activity. Through it, the baptized receives from the Holy Spirit the necessary energy for making the grace received at baptism bear fruit as well as the strength to develop actively the spiritual gifts given him. Whereas baptism confers being and life upon man by granting him to be and subsist in Christ, chrismation perfects the neophyte by communicating to him the energies and activity relating to this life, permitting him to grow to the point of attaining the stature of the perfect adult man, that is to say, the man deified in Christ. As St. Dionysius the Areopagite says, the divine operation made manifest in this sacrament is the principle of all perfection and sanctification. The rite consists essentially in anointing the newly baptized with the holy chrism or Miron, which having been consecrated is with the epiclesis no longer pure and simple oil, but the gift of Christ having become an efficacious vehicle of his divine grace by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The priest performs this anointing by tracing the sign of the cross successively successively upon the forehead, eyes, nostrils, lips, ears, breast, hands, and feet of the baptized, saying it each, anointing the words, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this way, Each of man's faculties receives the grace permitting it to turn toward God and to be fully activated in conformity with his will by benefiting from the assistance of the Spirit and from his vivifying, sanctifying, illumining, and deifying energy. Obviously, the anointed organs are not the only ones that receive this gift. All the body's other faculties, and above all, the soul, do as well. For as St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, Quote, With this visible chrism, the body is chrismated, but the soul is sanctified. The anointing on the different members does not possess a value merely relative to each member, rather, it signifies that man in his totality receives the divine, vivifying, illumining, and deifying grace, and that this grace is activated throughout his being. Again, Saint Cyril of Jerusalem says, This sacred gift is the body's spiritual safeguard and the soul's salvation. Clothed by chrismation in the breastplate and weaponry of the Holy Spirit, man can walk with assurance in this life, neither dreading attacks from the enemy nor fearing any other evil. He can say with the Apostle, I can do all things in him who strengthens me, that is, through Christ. Philippians 4.13 Healed from spiritual asthenia, And every unhealthy weakness engendered by sin, man is vivified in his desire and strengthened in his will and other faculties, now reoriented toward God. He is filled with zeal and fervor so as to act in accordance with God's will on the path of virtue, where his nature finds full health by completely being fulfilled in conformity with its final goal. 4. Confession Through the sacrament of confession, the sins committed after baptism are forgiven, and the penitent is reconciled to the Church. The sinner, in a spirit of repentance manifesting his regret for the faults perpetuated, and his will to mend his ways, confesses his sins to God in the presence of the priest, and receives from God, whose pardon the priest invokes, the absolution of his faults. He also receives from the priest spiritual counsel appropriate to his level and if need be an epidemia a penitential exercise, the purpose of which is to aid the penitent in finding his way back to the abandoned path of the virtues. On examining the Christian idea and practice of the sacrament of confession, one is immediately struck by the medicinal character that they take on, not only the holy fathers, but also the entire church tradition, as well as all the ritual and liturgical texts, evoke this sacrament's form and effects, as well as the function of the priest conferring it, in medical terms. In the introductory prayer, the confessor says to the penitent, take heed, lest having come to the physician thou depart unhealed from the great book of needs. Speaking of the Byzantine period, Father John Meyendorf writes, Confession and penance were interpreted primarily as a form of spiritual healing. This following logically from the fact that sin itself in Eastern Christian anthropology is primarily a disease. And P. Lane and Tralgo notes in the same vein, in the middle of the third century, the sinner and the sin are thought of as though one were dealing with a sick person in a sickness. The texts showing this are numerous and impressive. According to the didascalia, the bishop to whom in the first centuries the responsibility of hearing confessions and giving absolution fell, must be, quote, like a competent and compassionate physician. The apostolic constitutions, essentially a compilation made at the end of the 4th century of the Didascalia, the Didache, and the Diataxis, or Apostolic Tradition, developed the same notion. Of note, one finds therein these counsels, We must help the sick, those who are in danger and those who are faltering, and as much as possible heal them, through the preaching of the word and deliver them from death. Yea, Those who were well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Let the bishop receive and care for those who repent of their sins. And let him heal the sheep that is sick. Let him dress the one that is wounded, that is to say the one that is lost, weakened or broken in sins to the point of limping on the road. Let him dress the wound with words of encouragement. Let him relieve it of its sins and give it hope. In speaking to the bishop, quote, The Church of God is a serene peace. In loosing sinners, restore them as healthy and irreproachable. As an experienced and compassionate physician, heal all who are overwhelmed by their sins, since you are a physician of the Savior's church, provide treatment adapted to each of the sick. In every way care for, heal, and restore them to good health in the church. To continue, as a compassionate physician, care for all sinners. Make use of salutary methods so as to help them, not only by cutting, burning, or applying caustics, but also by placing bandages and dresses, by administering gentle and healing remedies, and by applying the damp cloth of encouraging words. But if the wound is deep, treat it with plasters so that the swelling may be reduced to the healthy parts level, If it is infected, then purify it with caustics, that is to say with reproaches. If it swells, reduce the swelling with a bitter bandage, the threat of judgment. If a wound becomes gangrenous, cauterize it and excise the abscesses by inflicting fastings. These latter counsels are quite close to those given by St. Cyprian of Carthage to the priest when he asks him, to be as energetic and thorough with regard to the illnesses of the soul as the physician is with regard to bodily abscesses. Quote from his work on the lapsed. The priest of the Lord must employ curative remedies. It is a bad physician who treats tumescent abscesses gently, allowing the poison to proliferate in the body's interior. The wound must be opened and lanced, and following the removal of the gangren- gangrenous parts one must intervene with a vigorous cure and even if the sick person should protest cry and moan because he cannot stand the pain afterwards he will thank the physician as soon as he regains his health end of quote many other fathers touch on the sacrament of the confessor and the confessor's rule in similar terms to those who have sinned Saint John Chrysostom advises the following, Enter the church, repent therein. There dwells the healing physician and not the condemning judge. There one does not demand the punishment of sin, but grants remission. For his part, Saint Athanasius of Sinai recommends that one find an experienced spiritual man capable of healing us, so that we might confess to him. Like the physician, The confessor must take care to use the fitting remedy in each case. We have seen that the Apostolic Constitutions recommended to him the following, since you are a physician of the Savior's church, provide treatment adapted to each of the sick. This is all the more important since, as St. John Climacus points out, sometimes what serves as medicine for one is poison to another, and sometimes something given to one and the same person at a suitable time Serves as medicine, but at the wrong time, it is poison. From step 26. To cite some other examples, I have seen an unskilled physician who, by subjecting a sick man to dishonor, who was contrite in spirit, only drove him to despair. And I have seen a skilled physician who operated on an arrogant heart with the knife of dishonor and drained it of all its foul-smelling pus, end of quote. It is thus necessary to take into account individual particularities according to character, place, progress, and a good deal else. The Council of Trullo from 692 AD stresses this necessity and does so by likewise using in it formulations and terminology from the medicinal sphere, clearly proving that the idea of sin is. Sickness and the priest as physician is not merely a simple stylistic, stylistic trophy found in the writings of only a handful of fathers. Rather, this notion is confirmed by the entire church and belongs in essence to the very way in which the church thinks of the nature of these realities. Quote from the Council of Trullo, the so-called Quinisex Council It behooves those who have received from God the power to loose and bind, to consider the quality of the sin and the readiness of the sinner for conversion, and to apply medicine suitable for the disease, lest if he be injudicious in any way of these respects, he fail in regard to the healing of the sick man. For the disease of sin is not simple, but various and multiform, and it germinates many mischievous offshoots, from which much evil is diffused, and it proceeds further until it is checked by the power of the physician. Wherefore, he who professes the science of spiritual medicine ought first of all to consider the disposition of him who has sinned, and to see whether he tends to health, or on the contrary bears himself away to disease by his own behavior, and to look how he can care for his manner of life during the interval. And if he does not resist the physician, and if the ulcer of the soul is increased by the application of the imposed medicaments, then let him mete out mercy to him according as he is worthy of it. For the whole account is between God and him to whom the pastoral rule has been delivered, to lead back the wandering sheep and to cure that which is wounded by the serpent, and that He may neither cast them down into the precipices of despair nor loosen the bridle towards dissolution or contempt of life, but in some way or another, either by means of sternness or astringency or by greater softness and mild medicines, to resist this sickness and exert himself for the healing of the ulcer, now examining the fruits of his repentance and wisely managing the man who is called to a higher illumination. For we ought to know two things to wit, the things which belong to strictness and those which belong to custom, and to follow the traditional form in the case of those who are not fitted for the highest things, as St. Basil teaches us, end of quote. Dr. Larche continued, Confession is shown to constitute an efficacious therapy in many ways and on many levels. First of all, the avowal of sins is by itself freeing. And as much as it is not disclosed to anyone else, the sin roots itself in the soul. It develops there, and it spreads throughout it contagiously, poisoning and gnawing away at one's inner life, and causing great devastation everywhere. Sin is a difficult burden for man to bear alone, and all the more so since its effects are often manifested by troubles that are difficult for man to pinpoint, and which he is powerless to master. Sin is primarily a source of anxiety, or even anguish, above all by reason of the guilty feelings that usually accompany it, but also because it arouses and fosters demonic activity. The demons profit from this morbid terrain to sow unrest in the soul using all means. Sin then leads man to undervalue himself and to have a pessimistic view of his being and existence, and engenders within him a state of depression, and discouragement, and can even lead him to despair. Through the encounter with the priest in the midst of the sacrament, the penitent finds the possibility of ending his isolation and leaving the morbid solitude that provided fertile ground for the growth of his ills. By speaking to the holy confessor of what troubles him, the penitent opens the abscess that was gnawing away at him in secret. The simple act of going to another person, of daring to open oneself up to him in all humility and in vanquishing all shame, of mercilessly accusing oneself before the other by overcoming all love of self, already constitutes an important step toward leaving the unhealthy universe of sin. Moreover, speaking of the ills from which one has been suffering has a freeing effect the psalmist says, quote, Because I kept silence, my vo- my bones are waxed old. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then thou forgavest the guilt of my sin. Psalm 31 By confessing his spiritual illnesses, the penitent causes them to depart from him. He objectifies them and stops identifying himself with them. He sunders the links that united him to them and bound him to them in a, in a state of estrangement. These spiritual illnesses cease to inhabit his inner world and act as a parasites on his soul and become foreign to him. For this reason, the demons' tactics are overturned. They can no longer act in secret. Since the kingdom of darkness, of which they are princes, has been suddenly filled with light, their power fades, for their ways have been revealed. The demons find themselves expelled from the soul along with the sin that nourished them. The therapeutic scope of confession is all the greater since in its traditional form, such as the Orthodox Church has been able to preserve it, it does not consist of a dry and stiff enumeration of more or less artificially formulated sins. The penitent spontaneously confesses his faults and shortcomings in a direct and lively way, relating their circumstances to the father confessor in order that this confessor might better understand him and proceed to give him the advice best tailored to his situation. However, he also relates to the priest everything preoccupying him, exposing to him freely and naturally all the problems and particular difficulties he may be encountering in daily life. He points out, what worries and obsesses him, and what causes him anguish. He reveals his concerns and sufferings, trying best to lay bare the states of his soul to the confessor. The penitent confides his weaknesses to the confessor, opens up his personality to him, and spreads out before him his life and all its imperfections and deficiencies. Such an opening up, is facilitated by the assurance the penitent has of benefiting from divine mercy as the priest reminds him in the introductory prayers, but also by the attentive attitude which the priest is duty-bound to demonstrate visibly and by the compassion he must manifest. Indeed, the priest must be both extremely attentive to everything said to him as well as take care not to pass judgment on the person opening himself up to him. The priest must give the penitent absolute leeway as to how he expresses himself and must display great gentleness and patience in his regard. The holy confessors, going beyond the stage of benevolent neutrality that ordinarily characterizes like a secular psychotherapy, demonstrate in their hearing of the sins revealed to them a deep compassion, really sharing the difficulties and sufferings of the person whom they hear. They invisibly manifest the spiritual love they feel for him, as seen in the father standing before the prodigal son and in the image of Christ alongside the good thief. Far from being oppressive and invasive, this love possesses the gentleness and discretion of the paracletes, consoling and motherly grace, spreading a healing balm over the heart broken and wounded by sin. This attitude of the priest who does not judge but understands consisting of patient and humble listening, but also true compassion, and which is an absolute availability to the other who is immediately received as a suffering brother, permits the establishment of the deepest and closest relationship possible in charity, realized straightway in the atmosphere of trust that is indispensable to the implemented therapy's efficacy. This relationship allows communication to be of the highest quality, and permits the penitent to have no fear or reticence in opening up his soul as completely as possible in receiving such treatment as befits his state under these best of circumstances. If the confessor's role in the first place is essentially to listen, it can on occasion also be to question, elucidate certain points, or clarify certain details if this seems necessary to him in order to understand the penitent better, all with the aim of providing him better treatment. In any case, the priest must do this with tact and discretion, in a spirit of charity, attitudes through which he makes clear that his intent is purely to come to the aid of the person who has come to him. He must avoid any invasion into the penitent's soul, any infringement of his privacy, and any idle curiosity absolutely respecting the penitent's freedom. Such an intervention on the part of the priest may seem necessary when it appears to him that the penitent is hiding something from him, is incompletely recounting some sin or pathological state, or is reticent or hesitant on such a point. Moreover, the prayer preceding confession invites the penitent not to omit anything, be not ashamed, neither be afraid, nor conceal anything from me, but without reticence, Tell me all that you have committed, that you might receive the pardon of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, certain sins may remain unconscious. The confessor thus has the task of perceiving the impassioned attitudes or the states of the soul, which the penitent may not or does not want to see in himself, and which consequently he does not confess. Indeed, certain passions, particularly pride and vainglory, as well as demonic activity, can darken the conscience. The confessor can thus indirectly come to know the penitent's unconfessed state through certain words, intonations of the voice, or moments of silence or hesitation. He can also discern this by means of certain attitudes or gestures of the penitent, and also by referring to his knowledge of the past, of the penitent's history and his personality. The priest may also have direct knowledge of this by reading the penitent's heart if he has received from God this charisma, as is the case with some holy confessors. In all cases, the discernment employed by the confessor, no matter its degree or keenness, appears as a divine grace connected to his own level of spiritual development. The confessor does not always tell the penitent outright of the knowledge he gains by these means especially in cases where he would risk hurting the penitent in doing so. Rather, he might allude to it or at least take it into account when giving the penitent counsel. So it is that the penitent might be greatly surprised to receive suggestions bearing no relation to what he said in his confession and having no link to what he thought his state to be. The tradition sees in the confessor a physician, and in his words a remedy, particularly at this stage of confession, when the priest pours forth his spiritual advice to the person who has just admitted his faults. Indeed, for the priest, it is a matter of envisioning and presenting the therapy to, the, to be implemented so as to get to the root of the illnesses revealed to him or that he himself has detected. His role is not to give some general instruction, but first of all to determine what is most suitable for the person standing next to him, considering the latter's own personality, way of life and activities, possibilities, usual difficulties, and so on, and for the type of pathology presented. With this in mind, it is desirable that the priest know the penitent well and be able to track the development of his interior state in order to be able to judge correctly both the penitent's particular situation and the change of his illness for the better or the worse. For this reason, the faithful are advised always to confess to the same priest. A personal relationship is inaugurated between the confessor and the penitent, not only in so much as it it is not anonymous, for the reasons we have just presented, but also because a dialogue is established at this stage of confession. The penitent can react to what the priest tells him. He can question him. He can talk with him with the aim of developing certain points more fully from the viewpoint of having a better understanding of the situation, and thus a better therapeutic strategy. In this dialogue, shown to be all the more profound and efficacious, since it takes place in the same atmosphere of trust, simplicity, and charity, present at the admission of sins, the priest does not appear as a master, promulgating some abstract and dogmatic teaching from his throne on high, but rather as a father who, with the zeal, wisdom, and love that come to him from the Spirit, encourages, exhorts, consoles, and warns, either harshly or with utter gentleness, by his words which are accompanied by prayer, and which for this reason, and also by reason of the charismata, linked to the confessor's function by the sacrament that instituted it, possess not a speculative but operative value. The priest prepares the Savior's return in the penitent's soul after the example of St. John the Baptist, making level the Lord's paths, filling every valley, bringing low every mountain and hill, making straight everything made crooked by sin. During confession, the penitent must be moved by repentance. His attitude at once made up of regret having previously distanced himself from God, and of the firm resolve to correct his ways in the future, makes the penitent particularly receptive to the advice given by the priest with his salvation in mind. The prestige attached to the office of confessor and possibly to his personal holiness also contributes to this receptivity. The words spoken henceforth by the priest are no longer ordinary words. This is especially so since they are enhanced by the fact that they are proffered in the framework of ecclesial time and space and that the priest speaks not in his own name but in the name of the church. He reveals God's theontherapeutic word and grace by the inspiration of the Spirit which confers upon his words a particular strength and efficacy. This is especially so if the penitent opens himself up totally to them manifesting a firm resolve to get better. Facing the confessor, the penitent is no longer alone, lost, led astray by the effects of his sins. The priest's counsels give him once again the true and sure norms that will permit him to find his footing again and to know without fear of being mistaken what must be done in order to regain and preserve the health he had lost. These counsels essentially allow him to recover correct judgment and a correct life In conformity with God's will. They remind him of the spiritual goal toward which he must strive, the norm of perfection to which every Christian is called to conform himself, but they also point out to him the paths that will allow him to accomplish this. These essentially practical counsels will tell him, for example, how to fight some morbid predispositions from which he suffers, how to deal with some impulse, how to battle against some passion, how to succeed in better practicing some virtue, how to circumvent some difficulty he regularly encounters on his path or which is liable to arise under some circumstance or another. The epitemia, a penitential exercise, a kanona, that the confessor might give, has the same therapeutic sense as his counsels. Paul Evdokimov writes on this topic, It is not a punishment. The juridical moment of satisfaction is totally absent. It is a remedy, and the spiritual father looks for the organic relation between the sick person and the method of therapy. The aim is to situate the penitent in the conditions under which he is no longer enticed by sin. St. John Chrysostom says, We do not ask if the wound has been dressed often, but if the dressing has done any good. The state of the injured shows this the moment the dressing is removed. Thus it is a matter not of compensating for material things, but of drying up their source." Of quote. At the moment of absolution, Christ pardons the sins both voluntary and involuntary, known and unknown, of the day or of the night, in the mind and in thought, at the prayer of the priest, and the penitent is reconciled and united, reunited to the Church. Visibly at work in the absolution is Christ's therapeutic grace, which destroys and eliminates all the penitent's illnesses and renews his soul, returning him to the health and grace given him by baptism, but from which he has withdrawn through his sins. The moment of absolution is necessary for a true and deep healing. Certainly, The confession alone comforts the sick person, but sin still holds a certain power, despite being in some way exteriorized and objectified by this avowal. Absolution alone utterly neutralizes sin, destroying it by the divine pardon. It does not suffice to tell the physician that you are sick and what ails you so as to be healed of your illnesses by this fact. Not even the encouraging words of the physician or his advice are sufficient, even if this forms an important therapeutic component. Only when the evil has been destroyed at the very root by the medicines has the healing been fulfilled. Absolution assures man that his past illnesses no longer subsist and guarantees him the divine pardon for all his sins. The penitent then knows an inner freedom, regaining spiritual peace and joy. In confession, the penitent is not only moved by regret for the mistakes he has made, he also wishes therein to find again his nature's innocence, restored by baptism, but lost on account of sin. He also wishes to walk anew in all purity on the paths of God. So too, the sacrament of repentance seems essentially directed toward the future. It allows the man freed from sin's fetters no longer to be determined by any past evil, giving him complete possession of himself again. It puts afresh at his disposal all the strength that had been given him at baptism and chrismation and renews him in all his being. It allows him once again in God to be the master of his destiny and to set off once more in newness of life on the path leading to the fullness of deifying grace. Like baptism, but to a different degree, the sacrament of confession is a ritual of renewal, putting to death the uprisings of the old man and turning his sickly habits into an outmoded past so that the new man of baptism might fully live again. After receiving absolution, the penitent must kiss the cross, the sign of Christ's victory over sin, sickness, and death, and the gospel, the sign of new life in Christ. Through absolution, the penitent is reconciled and reunited to Christ's holy church sin had separated him from the body of christ from grace from the communion of the saints from the church's community the sacrament abolishes these separations these pathological rifts in the relationship to god and his brothers and pulls the penitent out of his deadly isolation the penitent can then regain full communion in the sacrament of the altar and in the sacrament of the brother and take up once more the place falling to him among God's children. Finding the source of grace again from which he had turned away, he can pursue his theanthropic growth in the Spirit, as far as the stature of the adult man in Christ, the archetype of his nature, and the model and source of his health and holiness. 5. The Eucharist The Eucharist appears as the greatest of the sacraments. One cannot surpass it nor add anything to it. It is truly the mystery that recapitulates the totality of the divine dispensation, and one receives in this sacrament no longer the gifts of the Spirit, however abundant they be, as in the other sacraments, but the benefactor himself, the treasure containing all the fullness of the graces. Here it is a matter of the possession of the resurrected. It is he himself whom we possess, and not something of him. Nicholas Cabasilis Additionally, this sacrament constitutes the fulfillment of all others, the sacrament to which all others lead. By communing of the body and blood of Christ, in whom all the fullness of the divinity dwells bodily, man receives God even in his own body and soul. The Eucharist does not simply liken man to Christ as do the other sacraments. Rather, it makes him Christ in reality. Quote, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 6.56 Christ's body and blood permeate all our members. St. Cyril of Jerusalem teaches, Thus we become Christophoroi from his mystical catechesis. In this way, according to the blessed Peter, we become partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1, four. Through this sacrament, God infuses himself into perishable humanity, that by this communion with deity, mankind might at the same time be deified. Note St. Gregory of Nyssa, who further writes, For in the manner that, as the apostle says, a little leaven assimilates to itself the whole lump, so in like manner... That body to which immortality has given it by God, when it is ours, translates and transmutes the whole into itself. This sacrament gives man the food corresponding to his second birth, by which he returns to his true nature. St. Nicholas Cabasilis notes that it is perfect in every respect, quote, and there is not a single need of the faithful to which it does not fully respond. The Fathers likewise see in it not just any remedy, but the remedy par excellence, capable of healing all the ills connected to sins. St. John Chrysostom says, there is no illness that does not yield to this remedy's power. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, we who have tasted the solvent of our nature necessarily need something that may combine what has been dissolved so that such an antidote entering within us may, by its own counter-influence, undo the mischief introduced into the body by the poison. What then is this remedy to be? Nothing other than the very body which has been shown to be superior to death and has been the first fruits of our life. St. Nicholas Cabasilis describes the Eucharist as the only cure for our nature's ills. He states further, we must take recourse to this remedy not once but continually the physician must continually lavish us with his care so as to heal us before communing the faithful asks christ in a prayer composed by saint basil may these holy things be to the healing of both soul and body the same request is formulated in the first of the post-communion prayers and in another prayer written by saint john chrysostom the communicant presents this wish to Christ. May my body and soul be restored to full health. With regard to the Holy Mysteries, St. John of Gaza writes, The Lord heals the sinners who draw nigh to him like wounded men in need of help. Christ's body and blood that are consumed by the communicant manifest their therapeutic powers in his entire being through their property of spreading throughout his body and soul and mixing intimately with them. They purify the communicant's body and soul of every sin and defilement, healing him of every spiritual illness that may have affected him since his baptism, on account of his neglect to conduct himself in accordance with his gifts. Certainly, penitence and the battle against sins constitute antidotes, but they prove ineffective if not joined to this fundamental therapy of the Eucharist. St. Nicholas Cabasilas notes that the holy gifts have the power to restore in us the image of God that has been blurred, to restore our soul's beauty, to heal our decaying matter and raise up our failing will. It reunifies the whole human being, divided and dislocated by sin, and restores it to its wholeness. St. Gregory of Nyssa, calling to mind this Eucharistic cure, writes quote, we who have tasted the solvent of our nature necessarily need something that may combine what has been dissolved moreover the prayers preceding and following communion state that the eucharist has the power to make man's false reasonings and evil thoughts disappear completely as well as to hinder all his bad habits it protects him against all evil and against the devil's assaults being the safeguard of his soul and body. This food that nourishes body and soul supports them, fortifies them, and strengthens them. Moreover, it pacifies the spiritual faculties. Whereas the separation from being with God had put man to death, this sacrament reestablishes communion and gives man life anew. It is even his only source of life. St. Nicholas Cabasilis writes, quote, to revive those who have succumbed and died through sin belongs exclusively to the sacrament of the altar. End of quote. Giving to man him who is the principle of every life and of life itself. The Eucharist greatly vivifies man's being. Through it man receives from God himself divine life itself. St. Nicholas Cabasilas again explains quote, from the life in Christ, without a doubt, Material food is also life-giving, but not under the same conditions as the Eucharistic bread. For not having life in itself, it does not communicate life to us by itself, whereas the bread of life does have life in itself, and through him do those who commune of it live. In the first instance, the material nature is assimilated by him who consumes it. In communion, it is the complete opposite. It is the bread of life that changes, transforms, and assimilates to himself him who eats of it. Communion thus grants man to live eternally, making him incorruptible. For this reason, Clement of Alexandria calls it the remedy of immortality, as well as St. Ignatius of Antioch, who describes it further as the antidote against dying so as to live in Jesus Christ forever. 6. Anointing of the Sick, Holy Unction The sacrament of unction, also called the sacrament of the holy oil, is specifically intended for the sick. It appears even in the Gospels, and the numerous healings wrought by the apostles are linked to it. St. Mark recounts, They anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Mark 6:13 The holy apostle James also relates and recommends the church's use of it in the following words from James chapter 5 verses 14 to 15 Is any among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven The Church continues this apostolic practice by conferring the sacrament of the Holy oil, not only on the dying, but also on all the sick who request it, even if their condition is not grave, and it can be administered any number of times. If the sacrament is primarily intended for those who are sick in body, nonetheless, it also has as its aim the healing of spiritual illnesses, which justifies our presentation of it here. Thus, the Russian Church administers it to all her faithful on Holy Thursday, while the Greek Church currently celebrates this sacrament in families and provides it apart from any instance of bodily illness. Moreover, several ancient prayer books prescribe unction for all present at the rite. In its normal form, the sacrament is administered by an assembly of seven priests, the elders of the Church brought to mind in the Apostle James' The service consists of three large parts. We will mention only their most salient features. The first part is an office of consolation for the person who is to receive the sacrament. The second part centers on the blessing of the holy oil that is to be used for the anointings. Having prayed that this oil be blessed by the power, activity, and descent of the Holy Spirit, the seven priests in turn make this supplication O Lord, who in thy mercy and compassion healest the torments of our souls and bodies, sanctify this oil, that it become a remedy for those anointed therewith, and that it cause all suffering, all bodily or spiritual defilement, and every evil to cease. The third large portion of the service is dedicated to the anointing of the sick person by each of the priests. An epistle and gospel reading precede each unction for these 14 readings the church has selected the main passages of holy scripture relating to illness and healing seen from the viewpoint of the sick as well as those around him before the first unction james chapter 5 verses 10 to 16 and luke chapter 10 before the second romans chapter 15 verses 1 to 7 and luke chapter 19 1 to 10 before the third 1 Corinthians 12:27 to 13:8, and Matthew 10:1 and 5 to 8. Before the fourth anointing, 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, and following, and Matthew 8:14 and following. Before the fifth, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and following, and Matthew 25. Before the sixth, Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and following, and Matthew chapter fifteen and before the seventh, first Thessalonians chapter five verses fourteen and following in Matthew nine to continue. Each priest who is to proceed with the unction says a prayer. The seven prayers all different, thus to be recited, play a central role in the office. Recalling the mercy and compassion that God has always shown toward men, the prayers ask of him the preservation of the sick person's life, the assuaging of his sufferings, the healing and strengthening of his body, but above all and at the same time the forgiveness of his sins, his spiritual strengthening, his salvation and sanctification, the regeneration of his whole being, and the renewal of his life in Christ. Each prayer in particular stresses one of these aspects or another, but all link the soul's consolation to that of the body and connect spiritual healing, to physical healing, emphasizing the more fundamental importance of the former, while not underestimating the value of the latter. Then comes the unction accompanied by this prayer, O Holy Father, physician of souls and bodies, who hast sent thine only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to heal every ill and deliver from death. Heal also thy servant or handmaiden of his or her spirit weaknesses, both bodily and spiritual, by the grace of thy Christ, and preserve the life of this man or woman, for thou art the wellspring of healings, O our God. The seven priests then proceed together to lay the holy gospel open upon the head of the sick person while reciting a penitential prayer by which they ask of God the remission of his sins. Moreover, the whole service is marked by a strong penitential character, explained above all by the fact that the sacrament's goal is not only the healing of bodily illnesses, but also, as we have stressed, the healing of spiritual illnesses and the forgiveness of sins in conformity with St. James's prescription and the twofold meaning of the verb which, which he uses, quote, the prayer of faith will save and heal the sick man and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I mean...